As it happened just before we baptized Glafira Elizabeth, we heard the voice of a father singing to his infant son, who will grow up to be John the Baptist. Zechariah, the father, and this, that singing happened during the Advent reading. Yeah. Zechariah, the father, had been mute for nine months because he dared the question, the angel who came to tell him that after long years of childlessness, his wife Elizabeth would become pregnant. Apparently, Zechariah spent those months praying and pondering, for with his angelic-imposed silence ended with the, with the naming of his son, he broke into a song a song of good news. Blessed be the God of Israel, he sings. And then, strangely enough, instead of thanking God for the safe delivery of his son, Zechariah begins to sing about the ancient promises of God to his people. Even more strange, though, is his assertion that these promises have already been fulfilled. He has raised up for us a mighty savior in the house of his servant David, that we would be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. Now bear in mind that these words come at the very beginning of the Gospel of Luke. Far from being saved from their enemies and hands that hate them, the people of Israel were living in a land occupied by the Roman Empire. They were not free people. And as for the mighty Savior, well, that Savior hadn't even been born. Yet filled with the Holy Spirit, Zacharias sings. Knowing the state of the world, he sings. In the hope born out of his confidence in God's faithfulness, he sings, looking forward to a new era when God's people might serve God without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all their days. Zechariah sings to his young son, the babe in arms, too. And you, child, will be called prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people by the forgiveness of their sins. But it is the final verse of Zechariah's song of good news that most touches my heart by the tender mercy of our God. The dawn from on high will break upon us to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. What beautiful words of comfort and hope. We meet Zechariah's son John, now grown, in the third chapter of Luke, but only after he has been introduced in a very curious way. Luke begins with a list of seven names of those who were in power at that point in history, and thank you, good job on all those names, Vaca. It's almost as bad as Pentecost. <laughs> if I were to put his words in a modern setting, they would sound something like this. In the second year of the presidency of Donald Trump, when Jerry Brown was the governor and Camilla Harris and Dianne Feinstein were the senators of California and Ted Lieu was the representative of the 33rd district and Drew Boyles the mayor of El Segundo and Grant Hygieia was the bishop of the California Pacific Annual Conference, the word of God came to John, son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. Okay. This odd beginning teaches us two things. 
First, that God chooses to work within human history, not out there someone, but within our history, within our lives. It also teaches us that God does God's work in unexpected ways and with unexpected people. For like a bird on the wing, the word of God swoops by all those important emperors and kings and rulers in favor of a nobody in the middle of nowhere. John, the son of Zechariah in the wilderness. So who is John and why does he show up every year in the middle of Advent? He described many ways in scripture. The Gospel of John calls him a witness to the light that is coming. Zechariah, as we have heard, sees him as the prophet of the Most High who will prepare his way. But most of the time, John is connected with an ancient prophecy of Isaiah that speaks of a voice crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. I think we have a mini John going on out there. He's fine. <laughs> That's good. That's exactly what John is about, preparing his people for the, a long-awaited event the coming of the Messiah, their Lord and Savior. However, in contrast to Zechariah's beautiful canticle of praise, John's song, if you will, is filled with disturbing images, an axe lying at the roots of trees, ready to chop it down, fruitless trees being burned, a winnowing fort gathering grain and throwing chaff into an unquenchable fire. And yet, Luke says, John proclaims good news to the people. Really? Well, if that's so, this is not a song I want to hear at Christmas time, at any time of the year for that matter. But as I think of it, maybe it's a song that I need to hear right now when the season is in full swing and the baby in the manger is in danger of becoming just one more prop to help me get in the Christmas spirit. Maybe I need this song to encourage me to treat the coming one as serious business. Maybe I need this song to help me realize that the one who comes like the dawn also shines a light in the hidden darkness of my heart and seeks to straighten out the crooked ways of my life. Maybe I need this song to move me to repentance. Still, John's words sound more like bad news than good. He tells the people who come to hear him, you think you will be okay because you are a descendant of Abraham? Think again. Or to translate his words into our setting, you think you are in good shape because you've been baptized? Because you're a pillar of the church? Because you're a nice person? Think again. Dietrich Bonhoeffer once wrote, it is very remarkable that we face the thought of that God is coming so calmly, whereas previous peoples trembled at the day of God. We've become so accustomed to the idea of divine love and of God's coming at Christmas that we no longer feel the shiver of fear that God's coming should arouse in us. We are indifferent to the message, taking only the pleasant and agreeable out of it and forgetting the serious aspect 
that God draws near to the people of our little earth and lays claim to us. The coming of God is truly not only glad tidings, but first of all, frightening news for everyone who has a conscience. Only when we have felt the terror of that matter can we recognize the incomparable kindness. God comes into the very midst of evil and death and judges the evil in us and in the world. And by judging us, God cleanses and sanctifies us, comes to us with grace and love. Likewise, biblical commentator Leonard, Leonard Klein writes, it is tempting instead to preach about hope in the abstract or to rush Christmas and talk about glad tidings of great joy. The glad tidings are, however, in large part, the announcement of forgiveness. The fire with which the coming one will baptize is a refining fire, a cleansing fire, a fire that is able to burn away the impurities of our heart, our pride, our selfishness, our self-centeredness, our indifference, and makes us ready to accept God's gift of forgiveness so that we might live more fully as the children of God. No wonder John spoke with such urgency. His preaching may have sounded like hellfire and damnation, but his ultimate purpose was to prepare the people for their salvation. The Savior for whom you have been waiting is coming. Get ready. His words lead me and perhaps you to ask the same question that the people asked John. What then should we do? John's response to those who ask that question is surprising. He tells the crowds, whoever has two coats must share with anyone who has none, and whoever has food must do likewise. He tells the tax collectors who were notorious for adding on to the Roman tax for their own profit, collect no more than the amount prescribed for you. The soldiers, who were probably mercenaries, received this response. Do not extort anyone, money from anyone by threats or false accusation, and be satisfied with your wages. I like the way Reverend Janet Hunt summarizes John's admonition. She says, share what you have plenty of. Don't take what is not yours. Be content with what you have been given. Hmm. John could have told the people that they should prepare the, for the coming one with prayer and fasting and worship, long hours on their knees, or alternatively by taking up arms and revolting against their Roman oppressors. Instead, he simply says, share what you have plenty of. Don't take what is not yours. Be content with what you have been given. I think that this is the heart of the good news of John's wild song. That preparing our hearts to receive the salvation of God begins with small changes in our everyday lives. To be sure, such changes may be a bit harder than they seem at first. Um, being content with what I have is hard, and I don't know which of my jackets I'd be willing to give up. 
But these changes are doable. And over time, these small changes may indeed smooth the rough ways and straighten the crooked ways in our lives and open our hearts to receive God's gift of salvation. William Herzog equates the small steps with the mid-course corrections that were made during the Apollo space program. Remember that? The space capsule would go up and every now and then they'd fire the rockets just a little bit to correct the course, right? But so it's just the second, they would only burn for a few seconds, but the course changes were immensely significant in order for them to reach their goal. Those course changes, those changes in our lives are significant not only for us, but also for the life of our families, for our communities, and ultimately for the entire world. For God promises that all flesh will see God's salvation. Two songs of good news, one full of wonder and hope, the other calling us to account. May we find the courage to listen and respond to both of these songs, trusting in the tender mercy of the God who sends the dawn from on high to break upon us, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet in the way of peace. Thanks be to God. Amen.